0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's economics. My left eye sees pollution, those dirty fuels are burning, the earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill, fossil fuels are cheap wind and solar too steep,
1: drill, baby drill, predefined, misaligned, polarized division, shuddered mind, worse than blind, 2020 vision. How are you doing today, Dave? Doing great. Heading into Labor Day weekend, nice three or four day break. And uh, football's around the corner and fun decisions being made. I was really surprised and happily surprised that Belichick made Mac Jones, the Patriots quarterback. quarterbacks. So that's really neat. Our whole family has been on the Mac Jones train uh, for the last month, uh, going hand in hand with prob- our probable embrace of Alabama as our college team. Oh wow.
0: Okay. Breaking news. It's Alabama.
1: So you're so. you're basically so. going to try to alienate
0: everybody, is the plan.
1: Exactly. And I and I've already heard some some bad feedback from that decision, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I've got to be my own person. We've got to, you know, we've got to go with what we believe in. So I think that it's not that bad of a choice to, to make the choice for Alabama in any given college football season. Would you agree with that?
0: I, I think you're going to be okay from the standpoint of wins and losses. So what what you lose in credibility with the local population, you may gain in bragging rights as the season unfolds. By the way, I, I like your uh, Bucky coffee mug. There, the uh, listeners can't
1: see this, but this is a a great Texas institution. Now only taught, Well, Bucky's is wonderful. I mean, how many how many convenience stores have a whole section you know, dedicated um, to like meat and, and um, just these these awesome things in in life? Not not many. Never mind that you can get a 10-pound bag of ice for 79 cents. I mean, that water probably costs 79 cents. And then you <laughs> freeze right. it, they're losing money off that ice. But I, I will say this, and, and it's a shout out to Texas that that I, I think we all should move to Texas, but even better than Bucky's is H E B. I think H E B, the the um, the store, the grocery store, is where the cult of Texas begins because you kind of walk through its aisles and and everything has like a Texas edition, like you know uh, chewing gum Texas edition that's like bigger than regular chewing gum. (laughs) Right. Toasters, like everything's Texas edition. So um, H E B will 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 keep you here for for quite a while, and and aided by Bucky's and, and other great. Uh, shopping institutions like the sort. Now, how in New York City have any of those? You just have a Starbucks and every other like building, correct?
0: Uh, and a Dwayne Reed on every corner and, and a subway, by the way, where we are. We uh, we got about three subways within a five minute walk and at least two Dwayne Reeds. Uh, if you want really high priced drugstore kind of stuff, Dwayne Reed is the place for you. When I see the signs for Bucky's driving on the highway in Texas when we're visiting uh, my wife's family, you know, it reminds me when I was growing up drove through South Dakota and about 500 miles out, you start seeing the sign for wall drug. And, you know, you have to stop when you finally get there because you've been seeing these signs all day and it's, you know, a lot of little shops and, you know, keychains and pocket knives and all those things, but they got you because, you know, they, they sell it with the billboard, just like Bucky's does, uh, never actually stopped at a Bucky's. So, I'll have to do that sometime and see if it lives up to the hype, but
1: I, I know the strategy and the strategy does work. It does. It does. Well, we need our own billboard for our show up in the Dakotas because we, we now are down to two States where we haven't had a listener for democracy in America today. Those two States are um, North Dakota and Wyoming. So once again, a shout out to our listening audience. If you know anyone in either North Dakota or um, Wyoming, Please contact them and have them listen to the show. We're now, I think, up to forty-five countries, Matt, worldwide. That's we big. get to we get to all of them in the United Nations. We may have to sing like "We Are the World" or something like that as a point of celebration, or "Kumbaya" or something like that. Yeah, some, I'm, I'm you know, ready
0: to join you in in the chorus at least for that one.
1: Some global hymn. So yeah, anyway. I'm surprised
0: Wyoming though. I mean, I, th- I would think we would be big in Jackson Hole among the kind of Hollywood types that hang out there, but actually, you know, our old teacher who's actually been on the show has a ranch in Wyoming, right? We just got to get in the to tune in while he's visiting out there sometime.
1: Well, there are about a hundred thousand people that live there. So that's, you know, there's not, not many people there, but well, yeah, we'll have to have to work on Wyoming. Okay. And
0: North Dakota, everyone. Yeah. North Dakota is tougher, but we, we can do that too. Uh, out there on the oil fields. Someone's got to be listening. All right. Let's turn on that note to our reading day. We're moving into book two of the politics, the first six chapters.
1: So in book two, Aristotle takes up an argument that is forwarded by Socrates in the Republic and also takes up a secondary argument that's forwarded by Socrates in in Plato's laws about what the ideal form of a political community is. What's the best political community or regime that we can have? to live an ideal or optimal uh, existence. Uh, Socrates has given an answer uh, in these two earlier dialogues, and Aristotle is going to critique that answer that, that he gives. And, and he does so uh, by, uh, by setting up the following at the beginning of the discussion. Really, it's the scope of his inquiry. So Aristotle says that you have the states that exist in reality, and then you have theoretical forms of of a state, what a state might be. And the only reason why you'd take up a theoretical form of what a state might be is because the actual forms are not perfect. So he's going to go into this discussion of Socrates' ideal form, perfect community, and he's going to really come out of it criticizing that theoretical form and offering up a counter to Socrates. But he begins this by by asking the following question, saying that the following question is really at the center of all discussions of a flourishing regime or political community. He says there are three alternatives as to how states can operate. One in which the members, the individuals who live within a political community share in all things. second in which they share in nothing, they have nothing in common. And the third in which they have some things in common and some things not in common. So do members of the political community have all things in common, nothing in common, or some things in common and some things not? And he says, right off the bat, you cannot have a state that has nothing in common. There must be some element of the common for there to be a community. So you're left with two options, having either all things in common or something's in common and something's not in common. And this is where he gets into uh, the Republic of Plato. For those of you who are not familiar with Plato's Republic, Socrates near the beginning of the dialogue suggests that the best political community is one in which there are three types of people each doing their job. The job of the philosopher king is to rule, The job of the guardian is defend, and the job of the multitude is to produce and to consume. But then he says something very interesting about that guardian or defending class. He says that none of them should have individual property, and all of them should share their wives and children in common. Now, he'll argue this because he'll say that there's the problem with most states is our commitment to our own, gets in the way of our embrace of, of the whole. What do you make of this setup from Aristotle in book two, Matt? He, so he's obviously interested in kind of comparing what Socrates has, has said uh, with, with where he'd like to take the subject. Do you think that the way that he sets up the subject helps us understand it better?
0: I do. And I think, you know, he's, by, by citing Socrates' Imagery in the Republic and this ideal that you've just described—he helps us to, to test ideas that we don't expect anyone to attempt to fully actualize. Right? We don't—we don't see anybody running around running for office saying, "Hey, let's let's have all uh, families in common, all property in common." But we see tendencies in the direction of these things, and so we can test the weakness or the strength of the theory in light of the strength and weakness of the ideal type. And so Aristotle is giving us a chance to to do that as we evaluate this framework and a chance to think about, you know, what is it that actually holds a community together? Uh, how much is it valuable to share property or, or family connections? And, and where does too much of that sharing begin to break down the order and uh, the virtue of the community?
1: He's also, I think, taking it up in a, in a good way, because one of the great problems, if not the great problem of any political community is the fact that we're not all alike, that we're different people. And how do you make a plurality of different people work within a community? How, how do you take uh, disunity that is kind of natural to mankind and try to create unity uh, without undermining our, our very humanity? there's a reason why we want to bring people together. Perhaps this reason is best described by the authors of the federalist James Madison and federalist 10 where He says that faction is sown into the nature of mankind because we have individuality. There's, there's competition there. There's, there's a challenge between one set of men and another set of men that often leads to the dissolution of a civil society. So is, is the answer. Right off the bat, we'll just let's make everything the same. Let's give everyone the same thing, and his answer is going to be no. So, what are some of the problems with trying to to make wives and children property in in common? Well, all of them are going to all the problems are going to be kind of under the banner of the following: you can't force a unity that is unnatural. So, for example, if we said that all people have a commitment to all things, then there'd really be a commitment to nothing because not all people can be committed to all things. Not all people can claim something as their own. You can't say in unison that something is mine because if everyone is claiming that it's mine, right, then no one really owns it or has any kind of attachment or connection to it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think this is one of the key insights of Aristotle, that there's a a limit to our range of affection, we have particular affection for one's wife and children and other family relations, exactly because we don't try to extend that to everybody. And to try to extend that same affection to everybody would be to make that that feeling meaningless. Now, can you expand that? We think about within a church, right, and the close connections that you can have there, and and even you know, and and maybe in a more theoretical sense brothers and sisters in Christ even across geographic distances right can have a connection and care for one another but but we all reach the limit of of our affection it's impossible to have 50,000 people that you care for in the way that you care for your particular wife and and, and children and to try to push us in that direction creates like you're saying an unnatural situation and i think this is worth thinking about because again that's this isn't like you know the, no, no one is is campaigning on Plato's Republic Platform, but there's a lot of discussion, let's say, around education that that begins with the premise that children are, in some sense, the property of the community or the property of the country. And therefore, the preferences of parents can be trumped in certain cases because there's a community interest that's greater than the interest of the parent. And maybe the parent doesn't know, according to this theory, what's best for the child, but the community experts do. So we have instances of this. Uh, we have every four years. Uh, you know, you watch a Democratic National Convention. You will hear language about government as the thing that brings us together, kind of familial type of language. And so, you know, there is even without taking the extreme position that's that's tested and described in the Republic, there we, we see elements of this in our contemporary politics, and it's worth thinking through the implications of those claims in light of Aristotle's critique of Plato.
1: Agreed, I think we also have examples from the 20th century, real uh, world examples like the People's Republic of China or the USSR in which this forced type of unity did not produce harmony amongst the people. It actually produced disharmony that you didn't have um, friendship and, and real solidarity among different types, you actually had people who were kind of more at it for themselves because there was so much less to go around. So this hope, right, that that forcing a unity will be conducive to harmony is, is something that Aristotle also rejects uh, in this discussion. And I think the, th- the third and perhaps most powerful objection, not to say these first two haven't been powerful objections to this idea of holding things in common, if all is everyone's possession. Everyone will only care a fraction for each of those things. So, if you are a father to ten thousand children, you're really a father to none because you're not going to be able to father ten thousand children, not be able to uh, to be an influence over over those individuals and really care for every single one of those ten thousand. So, the more that you spread out this, the scope. Uh, of one's commitment, the less likely it is that that commitment's going to be true and real uh, and and bonding between yourself and another person. What do you make of that, Matt?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's just incontrovertible fact, right, that again, we we have limits to the range of our affections, we have limit to our attentiveness, we have limits to how many people we can practically care for in, in meaningful ways. And to get back to your earlier point about the, you know, the examples that we have beyond American borders, very interesting, saw this story this week about China, where China is concerned about uh, video games and children uh, being on video games too much. And so they now have a rule that you can't play video games Monday through Thursday at all during the school year and only for one hour, 8 to 9 p.m., Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, that's just the kind of rule that a parent might impose, right? But this is the government.
1: Yeah, I think you even find it in even more up close and personal problems right now in American society. We, on either side of the COVID regulation battles, want what? We want there to be one rule that applies to all and which there is no wiggle. And, And that could be uh, if you're coming at the issue uh, from the vantage point of, of more individual liberty, you want there to be a rule that just liberty is defended at all costs, or on the other side, that that health and well-being and security uh, is secured at, at all costs. And um, if you're in a position where you have to make a decision for a larger community and you want there to be some flexibility there, you want there to be both self-responsibility on one hand and common sense on one hand, but also liberty on the other, you find yourself in a really difficult predicament because everyone wants the common to be what they say it is. Does that make sense, Matt?
0: Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the position you're describing, which is really the better position, requires wisdom. And most people like the black and white rule, right? They, even if it's a rule that they don't agree with, they like to know the rule. And then it makes the decision easier. Okay, I guess I have to do this. Or maybe I protest against that or, or whatever. But uh, actually, in most situations, there, there's not one single rule that, that works well in all circumstances for all people. And so we have to exercise wisdom. And that's, that's a much harder thing to do. And it requires judgment and reflection. And, and these things are hard. And, and I think many times we would rather be relieved of the burden of them
1: one way or the other. Exactly, we'd rather not. We'd rather have the rule than actually do the hard work without the hard and fast rule that it would take to make the thing work. So here's where we go back to the beginning of Aristotle's politics, where he's going to emphasize the importance of private and public virtue in in the context of human affairs. There has to be a notion of what public virtue is. There has to be a notion of responsibility for community, but that's played out in a lot of private decisions that are made, the decision to be responsible to your neighbor, if you're feeling sick, to not go into work, um, to, to do things that you might not want to do, but you're part of a community and you should do them anyway. But that you, you're right, we, we want a rule. So what Aerosol says here in part four is that what's going to happen is that if you force unity, a lot of the natural things that bring men together will be set aside. What do we have going for us as human beings? Well, we, we've been made in a way where we can love that which is familiar. But if nothing is familiar, if all is kind of equally familiar, uh, then that love uh, will, be, will be cast aside or set aside. And so will things like friendship. Uh, things that you know, those bonds that are natural, where you know you like things that someone else likes, and you uh, enjoy the company uh, of individuals who you who you can uh, enjoy those things with. Um, if if you're forced into some unity uh, with another, uh, then there's not going to really be a a natural um, conduit between yourself and that and that other person.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the real dangers of of trying to impose upon people an affection for others that. They don't they don't feel. And that doesn't mean that you can't encourage your kids to say, you know, go go try to make friends with that new person across the street, right? So that, that's that's a good effort to make and one-on-one and person by person, that's that's a good project. But again, when you try to universalize these things, the, the the friendship that holds a political community together has to come from bottom up, it can't come top down. And one of the weaknesses that we have. In a more centralized political environment, is that you sort of always have the government there, right? Whenever you're trying to meet your neighbors and do things, the government's kind of looking over your shoulder, and there's some kind of role that that it's taking on, or some context that it's creating that that tries to shape your behavior, and and you're you know you're just trying to do your thing, and so when the government tries to force the unity, it actually ends up undermining the context in which those natural affections and friendships can be formed.
1: So he pivots near the end of of the beginning of book two, not only to talk about having um, relationships in common, but having property in common. And he's going to say something similar. He's going to give a similar critique of of common property. The more common the property is, the less that we care uh, for the thing itself. He writes, property should be in a certain sense common, but as a general rule, private. For when everyone has a distinct interest in their property, men will not complain of one another and they will make more progress because everyone will be attending to his own business. So if you have a thing, if you have a property that you tend to and it's your own, you're probably going to tend to it better than you would if it was not your own. This is what often called in economics the tragedy of the commons. Often proved that by if you go into a bathroom where no one takes care of the bathroom because it's a common possession. What happens to the bathroom? It becomes dirty. There are paper towels everywhere. Water spilled everywhere. Right. All you have to do is you know pull on the side of a highway in one of these places where you're like I'm not going in the bathroom there. To know the tragedy of the commons. So there's something about private property that is conducive to care, that is conducive to virtue. It can be overdone, right? You you can have too much care for your own thing. You can become illiberal or or lack temperance because of, of, of your private thing. But more often than not, that private property produces a care that is good for the political community.
0: Right. So you start by caring for the things that you own and that allows you, as you do tend those things and as perhaps your wealth and productivity grow in consequence of that, that allows you to be liberal toward others, right? So the, the, the end purpose is not to just allow you to hoard and to just have as much stuff as you possibly can and gather, gather, gather. There's nothing in Aristotle that is in favor of that. That's, that's not a good life. That's not living well. But private property creates the context in which you can then be generous to others, right? And you can hold property in common in that voluntary sense, right? In the voluntary sense that you experience, again, in a, in a, in a good church or in a good neighborhood where people recognize somebody who's having a hard time and, and naturally want to do
1: something about that. And this whole conversation really reminds me of, uh, when, I, when I think about it more and more, the temptation of Christ, in, in the wilderness.
0: Well, I think you're probably thinking in particular of the idea of, of, of turning the stones into bread. And, you know, think about the, the Grand Inquisitor and the brother, Brothers Karamazov, maybe as, as a reference point on this. But, right, so if, if, if Jesus decides that his ministry is going to be uh, providing the breads and circuses that the people crave and then gathering a people unto himself, right, a, a political movement around that. That's very, very different than the suffering servant of the cross. And, and you see that, you know, in the book of John and other accounts of, of what happens after the feeding of the 5,000, where, you know, people are, are eager for the bread, uh, but they're not eager for the teaching that goes with the bread, right? When Jesus explains he's the bread of life and that you have to, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have a part with him. All of a sudden everybody leaves. And it's it's down to the disciples at the end. And and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Will you leave too? And he says, No, where, where can we go? You have the words of life, right? So so Peter's probably ready to leave in some ways too, but he knows he can't leave. Right. So he's gotten the essential message. But but that, yeah, I mean, the the the, the temptation to supply those material needs and to build a movement around that is one that obviously Jesus rejected uh, to the eternal benefit of of his people. And there's, I think, a political parallel there as well, at least in terms of the the temporal benefit of the people of the political community.
1: Yeah. So Aristotle, in in kind of pivoting back to how ancient philosophy would have dealt with this question, says that the error of Socrates must be attributed to his false notion of unity from which he starts unity there should be both of the family and of the state, but in some respects only. There's no simple you know, magic bullet for this question of the division between mankind because we are different particular people. Now, that doesn't mean you throw up your arms and you say, okay, well, every man for himself and and forget about uh, trying to develop a, a, a solid and strong political community because Aristotle's politics is going to be a book in which he tries to help correct our, our bad vision, uh, our blind spots, our ignorance, and, and teach us how, how to better live with one another. But he's starting here, and, he's, he's, and this is the main point for, for this week, Matt. The state is made up of a plurality of people. It's made up of, of a plurality of particular individuals, which he goes on to write, which should be united and made into a community by education at the at the end of the day what he's trying to do is he's trying to educate and education is is not um, compulsion right education is not the use of the sword Uh, education is not forcing upon something uh, something that is unnatural to it education is trying to figure out how things can work best how can how how can they be best ordered and, and teaching individuals to habituate their existence toward that good order, toward that happiness. Aristotle's Politics, thus, is a book about trying to teach men how to be politically virtuous. You're not going to get it by a regulation, you're not going to get it simply by a law. You're going to get it by teaching. And that's a harder path, but it's the it's the best path to human happiness.
0: Let's wrap it up there for this week and next week. We'll look forward to more discussion around. Aristotle's critique of ancient utopias and, and the limits of political unity. Dave, let's transition now to, to Tocqueville's crystal ball. We are now on week three of our NFL preview. This week, we're looking at the AFC and NFC North. And just to remind you, last year, we had some strong teams in those divisions. AFC North was very strong. Steelers won the division 12-4 and four after an incredible start to the season, tapered off at the end. Ravens and Browns were both 11 and five and Bengals, of course, ended up at the bottom of the pile for 11 and one NFC North. You had the Packers at 13 and three bears and Vikings kind of the middle of the pack and the lions at the bottom of that division. So how do you see it shaking out this year? Let's start with the AFC North, Dave.
1: Well, I think other than the NFC West, probably the strongest division in all of football is the AFC North Steelers, Ravens, and Browns are considered to be three of the best teams uh, in the AFC and the Bengals have Joe Burrow. And I think um, are kind of on their way up as well. I think this year, however, in the AFC North, the Steelers continue their hold upon uh, the division. I think they have a really well-balanced team. Uh, they've got a, a good solid defense and offense. Uh, they, they blew it at the end of last year after winning all those games in a row, but I I think they come out of uh, the season with a 13 and four record uh, they won't get the number one seed because I think that will go to the Bills, which I'll talk about next week. Uh, but um, they'll probably get the second or third seed in the AFC. Uh, Ravens, so I think, like the Steelers, uh, almost carbon copies of one another, hard-nosed team, a hard nosed team, good defense, good offense, good balance, good special teams. You know, it could come down to a play between the two a field goal kicked in which, you know, the Steelers beat the Ravens. But I have the Ravens in at 12 and five. Uh, And I think a surprise team will be the Bengals. I think Joe Burrow is a really good quarterback. I think that that team has some talent on it. They may not get to 500, but they'll get close. And then my great disappointment uh, for uh, the AFC North for this year, the Browns. A lot of people are thinking the Browns could be Super Bowl contenders. Uh, Perhaps it's just the history of the Browns that that, uh, makes me think that that's uh, that's way out there. But I think that they'll be one of the great disappointments of the year. I'm, I'm still not sold on Baker Mayfield. I think he is a poor man's version of Brett Favre, and and Brett Favre, um, uh, were he less miraculous, could have lost a lot more games. So that's what I kind of see in Baker Mayfield, and I, I don't see them uh, doing anything with the AFC. Maybe I'm coming close, eight and nine, uh, almost 500.
0: Yeah, I see it a bit differently. I think so. You know, Ravens, I think will be at the top of the division. I've got them done at 12 and five. Strong defense, as you said. Of course, Lamar Jackson, extremely talented quarterback. Both throwing the ball and running the ball, and they're going to have some challenges on offense. More balanced attack, but I think overall they're the strongest team of the division. Uh, Browns, I, I think the Browns will kind of hold water. They they were 11 and five last year. I'm seeing them say 11 and six again this year. So I don't see them as Super Bowl contenders, but I think they're still solid on both sides of the ball. Steelers, I think this is it for Big Ben. I think you know that that end of season fade last year. I think was pointing to some underlying realities. There are a lot of offensive weapons, three great receivers, and now Najee Harris in the backfield. So around him, there's a lot of talent, but I don't think there's going to be enough there in Big Ben to do more than about a 500 team. So I've got them at nine and eight. And Bengals, I agree, are definitely on the rise, but Joe Burrow coming back from major, major injury and you know, rookie wide receiver that's got to get integrated in the offense when that takes half a year or a year. So I think, you know, next year could be the year they become a real contender, but I think this year maybe something like six and 11. All right. How about the NFC North, Dave?
1: Here, I think that the Vikings are going to have a bounce back season. They, they were strong two or three years ago. I think Mike Zimmer is a great coach. That defense is always good. I think they had a great draft as well, so it's just going to get better. I think that um, Kirk Cousins is not someone who's going to wow you, but I think he can manage a good game. Uh, And they definitely have some great uh, weapons on offense, uh, great receivers, great running back and cook. So I think they take this division at 12 and five. I think the Bears also a surprise in this division. Uh, They get um, to 10 and seven. I don't know if they'll make the playoffs. They may get close. But I think the great disappointment uh, will be the Packers in this division. I think there's been a lot of drama heading into the season. I think there's been a lot of an attempt to appease uh, Rodgers. I don't know how that goes over with the other 50 players on the team. And uh, my guess is that this will definitely be his last season. And if they have you know two, three, four losses at the beginning of the year and, and things are going in the wrong direction, my guess is Rogers will begin to pout, and even though there's a lot of talent on that team, that drama will will help sink it, uh, maybe to a nine and eight record. Uh, the Lions um, just plain awful, you know, one and sixteen. I would say for them, uh, they will uh, be fighting whether the teams for the number one pick in the draft. And they'll probably have it, and uh, I, don't, I I am not going to draft Matt Jared Goff in the first round of our fantasy draft next next Monday. Yeah, you know, nor am I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. News alert. That's
0: right. That's right. So you're saying Lions will be the first team to lose 16 games, but actually have a win as well. So that could be a, a I'll mark. Go, of I'll go with that prediction.
1: I'll okay. go with that prediction.
0: All right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, I, I, I've got a few differences with you. I agree on the lions. If you start at the bottom, I, I've got them at two and 15, but one and 16, 0 oh, and 17, both those seem very possible as well. I think the Packers will still win the division. I think they're still the strongest team. I've got them at 11 and six. So definitely not the same. Uh, last as last year, but I think they still have enough talent, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And I I mean, I can see the scenario you're describing. So the wheels could certainly come off and they end up eight and nine, you know, seven and 10, even if things go really badly, but I don't think that's the most likely scenario. So I'm going to say 11 and six for them. Uh, I do like the Vikings to improve. Um, and again, there's a lot of offensive talent there. Uh, Nine and eight is what I'm going to predict for the Vikings and the Bears. You know, how soon we see Justin Fields, my guess is quite soon. I think, you know, with, with the trend with Mac Jones starting and we know Zach Wilson's going to start. We know that Trevor Lawrence is going to start. I think the other two first round quarterbacks, Trey Lance and Justin Fields, are going to get their chance sooner than later as well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, among those five, if we can get five good NFL quarterbacks, we could use more good NFL quarterbacks. Uh, I think the bears end up eight and nine solid on defense ups and downs with fields on offense. All right. Well, we've got one more pair of divisions to go next week. Looking forward to wrapping that up. And in the meantime, we thank you as always for listening, for following the show, liking the show, reviewing the show. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again real soon.